The smugglers would be trying to smuggle out oil and they would try all sorts of things to prevent boarding teams apprehending them. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no way And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Were very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain was Proud of the pain. crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Peter Jones retired from the Royal Australian Navy in 2014 at the rank of Vice Admiral. He's now the President of the Australian Naval Institute. This is his conversation with Life on the Line about his time in the Arabian Gulf. I'm Angus Horden and in Canberra today with Peter Jones. Peter, thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Angus. Peter, what inspired you to join the Navy? Well, I grew up in Sydney and uh, my dad had a fishing boat, then a sailing boat, and we sailed on Sydney Harbour. I originally wanted to be a naval architect, but uh, come 15, I wanted to leave home. And, and the Navy at that time had the opportunity to go to the Naval College at, uh, at 16. Can you tell us about your early service with the Navy? Where was your basic training? So the basic training was at... Uh, at the Naval College at Jarvis Bay. So we did um, initially two years where they had two small sets of classrooms to complete the last two years of high school. We completed high school and then it depended whether you were going to do a degree and what sort. And in my case, I did an arts degree. So we had the opportunity to go back up to Sydney um, and complete our degree at the University of New South Wales. And during the uni breaks, we'd either go back to Navy training or go to sea and on the training cruise. But uh, so we had the, the best of both worlds, if you like, uni students with some money in the pocket. Are there any particular striking memories from those encounters with foreign vessels or anything more lighthearted that you can recount from those times? Well, certainly our initial time at Jarvis Bay when um, ships would uh, come in, because uh, the exercise area is just off Jarvis Bay, of course, um, quite often the uh, Cadet midshipmen would be sent to sea for the day. And I remember the, our first time at sea on uh, HMAS Brisbane and it was quite a rough day and we, we spent an awful lot of time on the upper deck uh, throwing up and, and wondering whether we'd made the right career choice. Peter, can you tell us about your first command at sea, please? My first command was actually um, the frigate HMAS Melbourne. So I joined her in 1998, so as commander. So some people have the opportunity to command a patrol boat um, early on, but, uh, but for me, uh, it was the frigate Melbourne. And is that the only Melbourne that you've actually served on? No, I was, as a junior officer, I, um, I was a, a trainee officer watch on the Carrier Melbourne and in 1980, and uh, that was uh, a very interesting time. They still had Skyhawk um, A4 fighters on board. We went to the Indian Ocean. And in fact, I, on one watch I had, we lost a, a Skyhawk taking off from the catapult. And so that was interesting seeing the, the pilot go past your bridge window uh, in a parachute. But a very, uh, very interesting period being on Melbourne and just seeing what a complex ship it was. And it was thoroughly enjoyable as an officer watched just to see all those moving parts come together. 
you become the skipper of Melbourne and you, as you said, you previously hadn't had command, but you're now commanding actually a major frigate with hundreds of people under your command. How did you suddenly step up to that role? Yes, um, I remember the, uh, I was very fortunate in terms of the program. I, um, in fact, uh, we just had a couple of weeks after I took command, we were going to the Rim of the Pacific exercise or RIMPAC in Hawaii. So it was uh, a very busy time preparing to go to that exercise and go. But I remember the first time we uh, were casting off and I said to um, uh, the XO, is there any particular place I should stand? And he said, you just stand where you like and they'll come to you. And uh, and that was, of course, very true. And and also you find that uh, you're a little bit unsure of yourself initially, but you, you don't try to show that. But um, after a while, you realise that you've had lots of experience. You've been second in charge of a ship. You've had many years at sea. And, um, and after you know, the first week at sea, you, you feel a lot more comfortable. I could imagine the big difference would be is as an XO, you've always got a CO to talk to. But as a CO, you can't talk up to anyone else. Yes, that's, that's very true. What you do have, though, is there is a bit of a brotherhood of captains. And so in my case, um, as I said, we were in a task group going across to Hawaii. Uh, the task group commander was a, a Captain Lou Rago. He was uh, become a great friend and um, he would, uh, in port, he would always go for his constitutional walk around the dockyard. And so I would always join him. And, um, and it was good just to have a chat and just about, you know, the things you go through and, and so on. And I found that over the time that um, it, it's great that you have other CEOs you can just talk to. As you say, there's no one else you can really talk to. But having said that, I think uh, one of the things I had and did do, and a number of other captains do this, if you know some people from previous ships that are now serving on your ship, and you may have known them for 20, 30 years, Sometimes you just individually say to that person, if you see that I'm doing something that's really stupid, just come and tell me. On board, I had a couple of people who had that, you know, that personal past to come and just tell me how things are going. And that's invaluable because you do need that sort of uh, that check. Now, for your service on Melbourne, you were recognised on account of the proficiency of your operations in the ship. Yes, so uh, I was fortunate enough to become a member of the Order of Australia. So in the first year, we did RIMPAC. In the second year, we actually went to the uh, Arabian Gulf and we did uh, sanctions enforcement as part of the UN Security Council resolutions against Iraq. And uh, and really, that award was really a reflection for the performance of the ship in those uh, boardings. And they were quite trying um, in terms of we were there in the hot part of the year and so the weather was you know uh, regularly in the high 40s and so it's really quite difficult for the, the boarding teams to be able to conduct their business in such a, a, a difficult environment. So let's go forward to the Arabian Gulf and in 2002 you've joined the United States Ali Burke class destroyer USS Paul Hamilton. You're not taking command of the ship, but you're on board the ship and you're acting as the Maritime Inception Operations Commander. So before we get to that action, can you explain that command structure that you're now in? Yeah, certainly. So what had happened after September 11 is that there'd been quite a big uh, force build-up in the Arabian Gulf. And Australia had... Uh, provided an increased number of ships, normally two ships, and they'd also offered a task group commander to command the multinational task group operating in the northern part of the Gulf. The standard countries that would participate in the maritime interception force were Britain, Australia and the US, but you'd also have other countries. So, for example, there was a Polish ship 
in in that area. That was, if you like, continuing that UN sanction enforcement that, that I was involved in in 1999. And in fact, those sanction enforcements had been going on since the end of the Gulf War. So a very long-term commitment for the Navy. So the arrangement was that um, Australia would provide a task group commander and a staff and normally that staff would rotate on a alternating basis with a um, with a US Navy captain and his um, staff and they were normally resident at the Fifth Fleet headquarters in Bahrain and so there'd be that 50-50 arrangement. In my case we knew that because of the international tensions and tensions with Iraq that if there was going to be a conflict it was going to be in the cool part of the year so that was going to coincide with the end of uh, end of 2002 beginning of 2003. So as a result of that I went into the Gulf with a, a larger staff of about 17 and also uh, with the prospect of spending a lot more time at sea and indeed we Instead of having a 50-50 arrangement, we've spent all but two weeks at sea. So within hours, literally, of onboarding Hamilton, you actually had your first incident. Yes, that's right. So um, one of the things with uh, sanction enforcement was that the it was a very dynamic environment. The smugglers would be trying to smuggle out oil or they'd be trying to smuggle out dates. And they'd do that in either dows, which are you know, small wooden traditional cargo vessels, or old merchant ships. And they would try all sorts of things to prevent boarding teams apprehending them or turning them back to go back up to the Korobdala waterway, which was the, the main waterway up to um, Umm Qasar and into Iraq. That was a, quite dynamic, and they would do things like they'd put barbed wire they'd, uh, on their guardrails, they'd electrify guardrails, they'd weld doors shut. So that was one aspect. But the, the thing that had just recently changed was that the Iraqi Navy had their patrol boats, their small PB-90 patrol boats, had started to do sorties out at the entrance to the Korobdala waterway. And there was some uncertainty about what their, what was what were they trying to do? You know, were they trying to maybe promote some sort of incident or something like that. So there's a lot of unsurety. The routine was that you would have a, a missile-armed helicopter in the air and you would be tracking what that patrol boat um, did. And in the operations room, you could see a video stream from the helicopter what was happening on the deck of the patrol boat. So you had to make sure that it didn't stray too far south and didn't impede operations and so on. So that was our first introduction into um, the theatre, and that was the, the first morning we, we were um, there. After that first morning, where eventually the patrol boat continued back up to its home port, we then realised we were in quite a, um, an intense environment. And we also sat, I sat down with the team and we were sort of worked out, well, what can we do to make this a sustainable operation? And one of the things we concluded was that there's a fair bit that that patrol boat would be intimidated by our frigates. And in fact, that's what we did. So every time a patrol boat turned up, we would send our frigates uh, that had shallow enough draft further north, close to the, the entrance to the Korobdala waterway. And sure enough, that did intimidate the patrol boat. And we, and we had that confirmed by talking to some of the merchant ship masters that they told us that the, the patrol boat captain had complained about our intimidating approach. So that was good. Peter, can you elaborate? How big are these Iraqi patrol boats? What is their offensive capability versus the size of your frigate and what you can do back to it? Yes, so it was, it was quite a stark difference. The, the patrol boat was uh, really the smaller than the, the patrol boats we have going around our, our coastline. So they would have been about 
you know, 35 metres or thereabouts, less than 400 tonnes. And whereas our frigates were, you know, at least 4,000 tonnes and missile armed. But having said that, the patrol boat had a, had a gun and it had, um, they fitted some anti-tank rockets on board. So if you were close in, they could do quite a lot of damage, particularly noting that this was peacetime, you, you know, so they could potentially get quite close. So that's um, why you didn't want to take any chances. And certainly my view was that you couldn't allow them to get the first shot in. We're very keen to try and de-escalate as much as we can because we're very conscious that no one wanted a, a conflict at this point in time and not one that just happened out of the blue. So you had to try and ensure that the situation was de-escalated. And so um, as a task group commander, I was carefully watching what was happening on the video screen. And, uh, and at times you found people got very excited. You know, sometimes you've said the helicopter uh, would report that the Iraqi crew are, are moving towards their gun on the front of the ship. But you could see on the big screen with using their same video that they were seeing, you could see that they were just going down and, and they were just having a look at their anchor and things like that. So you had to be very watchful about uh, what reports were made so that they, there wasn't any inadvertent Escalation. And what sort of range, Peter, would be unacceptable to you to allow them to come towards the frigate? So I was keen for them not to come within a mile. And we achieved that because basically they thought that our ships were quite aggressive in their manoeuvring. You had other Aussies in the area too. Captain Steve McDowell on your old ship, the Melbourne, and on the Arunta was Commander Ray Griggs, who is now, of course, a Vice Admiral and Vice Chief of the Defence Force. Can you tell us some of the action and encounters that you had while you were at sea in the Gulf? Yes, so we're very fortunate in terms of the task group staff. We flew into, um, into the Gulf, in fact, on a, a Latvian Aleutian 76 cargo aircraft. So we flew in and then flew into the American ship to take over command. The ships that we were associated with in our rotation was, of course, Darwin and Anzac, and they were still steaming from Australia. So we had the benefit of coming in and having very seasoned ships in the form of the Melbourne and the uh, Arunta still on station, very uh, well versed in the boardings. And one of the features of the boardings at that time was at sometime, most of the activity with the smugglers was at night. And sometimes they'd do what we used to call a mass breakout of dows. So you may have 20 or 30 dows coming out all in one go with the obvious intention of trying to swamp the maritime interception force and wouldn't be able to intercept them all. But, you know, ships like those two, they were really quite capable of sending out multiple boarding parties and we could uh, generate, you know, maybe half a dozen boarding parties in the water within the task group and to be able to have sufficient ability to be able to turn around a mass breakout. So both by that stage... Um, both Melbourne and Arunta had done each over 300 boardings. So they were, you know, outstanding ships. But, you know, that many, many months of service, but they were coming to the end of their time and they were clearly getting quite tired because it's quite arduous work. And, and Peter, when we do a boarding, are we talking about a Zodiac with, what, half a dozen sailors? Or Yes, that's right. So it's essentially uh, like a fast rubber boat. We had seven different sorts of boarding teams as well. So each navy had a, would have a different sort of boat, a different boarding team. We also had two special forces that would come out from Kuwait in a larger boat. There was the US Navy SEALs and the Polish Grom, which was the Polish special forces. So they would come out at night. We'd typically have a liaison officer from 
uh, normally from the Grom, um, on board our ship, and they would also do boarding. So you had to be um, cognizant of what were the different abilities, and essentially they would board the ship, inspect what was on the ship. If it had contraband cargo, they would then be turned around. So, um, so they'd go back up the river and sometimes they'd come back. And our routine was that if, if we had the opportunity, if, if the Dow was coming back for the second time that night, we'd put the Grom on board. One of the things with the Grom's procedure was they'd keep people's hands up all the time. And, and these guys, they got, their arms got quite sore, so they, they never wanted to come back um, a, a third time. So that was the, the Dows with the, the steel hulls, uh, the big merchant ships. They were less numerous, but they were a tougher challenge, as I explained, because they, they would have defensive things to stop boarding teams getting up on board the ship and also getting access into the engine room or, or the bridge to, uh, to take control of the ship. Okay, so a lot of these breakouts are at night for obvious reasons. Does your night vision enable you to see which are the bigger assets to go for and are you deploying the SEAL teams to them and regular Navy for the lesser ships? Yes, so we were uh, very fortunate because there was that uh, video link that was in the American helicopters. We would get the helicopter to fly at a reasonable altitude and we could look right up the Corbella waterway for you know maybe 10, 15 miles. And you could see, you know, the, the small towns, you can see the, the cars going around and everything. But you, but importantly for us, you'd see the, what was coming down the river and you had like a, an aerial view of the whole thing. And then you could sort of plan your dispositions about which ships were to take what part of the, uh, of the mass breakout. Were there any particular incidents that you can share that you're aware of it getting a bit heavy handed and maybe in those SEAL team operations action actually happening? We were very conscious of pressing upon people. The whole approach was to de-escalate and reduce any tension in boardings because the more you did that, the more the boardings were compliant, there was less chance for accidents and so on. So during my time, we had 27 ships, different ships come through the task group for a period of service and then they would rotate out. So we would make a big point of indoctrinating new ships coming in who, you know, were obviously very keen and eager just to, this is the way it works. There's typically no violence on the part of the smugglers. You know, they're there for business, but, you know, obviously they don't want to make it easy for you necessarily to get on board, but it was really important to be very professional and, and so on. So we had to monitor that. We had a couple of instances where a couple of boarding parties, not from Australia, but they took uh, some articles from a, a ship. We learnt that subsequently uh, and we learnt which ship it was and then we got the CO to do an investigation and action was resulted from that. So that was all part of that whole de-escalation process. We did have one incident two days before the war started where a Kuwaiti patrol boat, which were, they were, the Kuwaitis were operating to the west of us, close to the shore of Kuwait, they fired a warning shot on a, a dhow and the, uh, a bullet actually killed one of the crew, uh, one of the smugglers. And we, in fact, I sent a boarding team from the Anzac on board that dhow uh, with a medical officer and um, a very difficult situation because it was one of those things where if it went wrong it could have been used as a propaganda type thing by Saddam Hussein but uh, the young boarding officer um, did a terrific job in terms of just really de-escalating that situation as much as he could. The, in fact, the, the sailor who was killed was actually the brother of the master of the dhow so it was quite tragic. He was an Indian sailor. I can understand that if anyone's going to be angry with the Iraqis, it's going to be the Kuwaitis. 
So you could appreciate if anyone was going to take action against them, it would most likely be them. Yeah, so I think in that case, it was just, you know, one of these unfortunate things was that night, they were not as well practiced in boarding operations as necessarily us. These things happen, but um, but I guess that incident highlighted the responsibility that young boarding officers, he was just sub-lieutenant, you know, in, in a very uh, difficult situation. And Peter, to your point, I think the Australian military is well known for its excellent training. But as you say, even though you're an overriding command, but not as strong a command over Polish and American forces as you are our own. And I suppose you're pleased that none of the incidents were ever our guys, and even the other incidents were well managed. So my observation was that countries send very good ships and very good people, that they all uh, have had workup and training before they come into theatre. So generally the, the standard's very high. And what they do bring is they bring a diverse range of skills. And so, uh, you know, the thing I used to say to people was that a multinational task group is much more uh, capable than one from a, a particular nation because you've got subtle differences in, in capability. And the, the important part for a task group commander is to understand what are the strengths and weaknesses of all those elements, get them to work together as a team, build a, a team culture. And so there was very much a strong team culture in the multinational interception force as an identity, if you like. But having said that, you just need to be conscious that um, you know sometimes you do have issues and you just need to sensitively go through the national command structure if you need to have any changes made. Peter, did you have much to do with the American Special Forces, the SEALs? Well, we had a, um, a lot to do with them just in terms of they would come out at least once a week doing boardings. That was in the lead up to the conflict. So we, we knew the, the SEAL team that had done that was the one that was going on to the offshore oil terminals at the, at the outset of the war. So the SEALs did one of the offshore terminals and the Polish Grom did the other one. So right now at the War Memorial, they have an exhibit on special forces. And I would imagine that as a commander with troops in the field, as you are overseeing not only ours, but a whole multitude of nationalities, it must have been wonderful for you to actually be working with the best of these nations. Oh, it was. And uh, I mean, you felt very privileged in terms of the thing I found was, you know, from that first day that there you are on a Malibu destroyer and sometimes you're operating off a cruiser and and you have this task group around you and you just think, you know, what a privilege, but also it was really good of the Americans to give you that facility to be able to do that. It was, it was a bit like being given a sports car to drive for the afternoon, you know, it's a brilliant experience. Peter, there was something funny you said before that when the Iraqis were trying to smuggle out oil, you also said dates. Yes, yeah, so reputedly um, Iraqi dates are the best. So they would... Um, come out in large numbers and, and some will be processed, you know, and some in, in little gift tins with um, st stuff with almonds and so on, um, and others were just in, in bulk. But it, practically it was, a, it was a source of cash. Um, and, and that was the, the thing that we kept on just sort of saying, that whether it's oil or dates, it's at the end of the day, it's just provide cash. It's a hard for, currency. Yeah, for the uh, same regime. So you have commanded this maritime inception force during the core Abdullah Waterway operations. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us about those operations? So I think um, part of it is uh, the transition, and this is something that is quite often happens with the navies, is so for months uh, we were enforcing sanctions in peacetime and then, of course, come February, March was 
it was clear that there was going to be a conflict. And so we had to transition from the, having a role of maintaining UN Security Council sanctions to actually being part of a, a combat force in conducting uh, the invasion of Iraq. So we went from that part of the puzzle to then having quite a, a different range of missions. Some of the ships had to support the uh, Royal Marine assault on the Al Four Peninsula with a bombardment. We had to um, ensure that all those dows and steel hulls didn't block the naval operations happening further south. Most particularly, they didn't drop any mines. We also had to stop the Iraqi Navy from coming south and interfering. And so in the conduct of those operations in the first couple of days of the war, our force was actually able to stop some Iraqi Navy mine layers dropping mines into the northern part of the Gulf. I know in the first Gulf War, we sent over our clearance divers. Did you have them or similar divers at your disposal? Yes, we did. So we had clearance diving team three. So I guess in my position, I had two hats. One was the National Naval Task Group Commander, where I had the three ships. We didn't mention, haven't mentioned Knimbler yet, but Knimbler arrived and she became part of our task group. And also we had the divers. Putting on my other hat, which was the coalition maritime interception officer screen commander hat the divers weren't part of that they were with the rest of the divers under a different task group organization so just had to manage those two change command and two two jobs the divers were really well prepared they landed into kuwait they would then drive across the desert at the outset of the war overnight go to um Qasar, which was taken by the u.s marines and their role was to help facilitate the opening of the port of um Qasar, which was going to be used as the the hub for humanitarian aid shipping into iraq so they had an extremely busy job uh, working with the american diving teams the americans had dolphins as well to get rid of the mines around the port area there was huge amounts of ordnance and going up and seeing them at work i mean they, they were in their element but they're extremely well trained both in terms of mine clearance but also getting rid of lots of ordnance and little kids would bring them all sorts of guns ammunition rockets you name it um so which they had to probably in exchange for sweets or something um exactly exactly yeah so that was that bit uh but i I think it's probably worth if i can just go back to canimbla so so canimbla came in into theater and uh so this was a month or so before the war started. Um, so this was in the early part of 2002. She was coming with uh, strategic stores, large stores for the, the Australian Army, Air Force and Navy elements that were going to participate in the conflict. She was originally going to then be used as a strategic um, lift ship up and down the Gulf supporting uh, logistics. Knibbler had previously been uh, in the Gulf doing boardings. And so she was well-versed in boardings, but she was going to be an ideal command platform for the Maritime Interception Force in this new role that we're going to do. She had um, really good communications facilities. She was operating off a different satellite from the one the Americans were using or, or constellation the Americans were using. So that was important for us in terms of having adequate satellite bandwidth. She had lots of planning space, lots of room. And one of the concerns we had from a just a practical perspective, there was about 300 DAOs and there was 150 merchant ships up the Korobdala waterway. If all of those came south, they would have swamped our ability to generate boarding teams. And as I said, on a good day, we could have about six boarding teams in the water at any one time. So we calculated we need to have about 20. So how could we do that? Well, we'd have a few extra ships and the, the Brits gave us a couple of extra frigates, which was 
most useful. But what we worked out was we needed the Knimbla and we also needed the, the Polish ship, the Czniki, to actually have extra boarding teams on board. So Knimbla, for example, had 130 extra personnel from Brits and the Americans, and they were uh, boarding teams, extra boats, cooks, mechanics, all those logistic things you need. And I was able to get them from the ships further operating further south. So there was a lot of American ships which were operating further south. Over the months, some of them had gone through the Maritime Interception Force, so they knew the job that has to be done. They were further south where they had to be to fire their Tomahawk cruise missiles, and so they're only too happy to give us boarding teams and ribs and cooks and so on. So Knimbla became this hub and uh, in the nerve centre for the Maritime Interception Force, and so that then allowed us to then be able to generate about 20 boats at any one time or boarding teams at any one time if we needed to. And what would have been the maximum number you had to deploy? So uh, the the big uh, deployment happened when, uh, like all things, we had a quite an elaborate plan of how we we're going to clear the boats. And in fact, one of the things, just simple things, uh, we had to give them a map with a, a route of the route they would follow down the western part of the Gulf to clear the area. Um, we would paint a white circle on their deck so that aircraft could see, okay, that was a ship that's been cleared and can proceed. So there was a whole range of things that had to be thought about and put in place. But two days before the war started, there was this mass breakout of dows and they were chucking bags of dates in the water to indicate that they weren't smuggling. And they, there had been an erroneous report on BBC radio that the war was about to start. So our best laid plans had to be quickly adjusted and I called the commander of Fifth Fleet in Bahrain, explained the situation, recommended what we do is we actually clear all these vessels now early uh, and get them out of the way, which he agreed. And so we then generated that large number of boarding teams to start clearing those uh, vessels. And in the end, that was a great benefit to us because it cleared the battle space of merchant shipping. So, Peter, when did you finish up as Mio? First week of April, I think it was. For me, the, the hot part of the war was very quick. The maritime campaign in the Iraq war happened within a couple of weeks, essentially, and really the key bit was those first couple of days when we stopped the mine-laying operation, did the bombardment on our 4 and escorted the minesweepers and did riverine patrol up the Korobdala waterway. So we then pulled into Jebel Ali in the Knibla and then Captain Mark Kellum and his team took over but we were we were pretty well exhausted we, we'd we'd actually extended our time we were due to be replaced but because when the war was going to happen it made sense to keep the team that had been there for so long and, and knew the plan and in fact was involved in the development of the plan so we were overdue for replacement as was Darwin and Anzac and, and both those ships did a terrific job in, in sustaining themselves for that extra period. So, Peter, for your service, and again, the ship's company, you're recognised by the Navy and the American Navy. Yes, so that was uh, very kind of them. So I received a Distinguished Service Cross and from the Americans, the Legion of Merit. And Knimbla, uh, which I was on, that received a unit commendation. In November 2011, you were promoted to Vice Admiral. Can you tell us briefly about your last few years in the Navy? Yeah, so really after uh, that time in um, at sea as captain, I, I then got promoted and went to Canberra as a um, what was called a capability development job, a, a job which involved developing the specifications and requirements for 
capability. And I went into a communications job looking at communications and, and um, IT. And the reason being was the Chief of Navy said, well, you've been in the Gulf, you've seen how these complex communications work and I want a, someone who's used that those sort of systems for me with them to be in that job. So the thing I found in the Navy is that you end up going, you have these career changes. Although you spend 40 years in the Navy, you're, you have such, such diverse jobs. And so really from when I became a Commodore on, you ended up being in sort of more business management jobs, being involved in contracting and all sorts of things. So I end up doing that requirements job then as a one star and then as a rear admiral i was the deputy in that group and then finally i um, was in charge of the capability development group which looked after the defense capital equipment program in terms of developing the the program uh, for approval by government and the and the defense senior leadership and developing the the business cases that went to government for their approval Peter, there's so much we can keep talking about. From all your writing on maritime strategy and naval history to other key moments in your career. However, let's focus on the Australian Naval Institute. You're the president and you've launched a podcast. Can you tell us more about that, please? Yes, so for the, uh, the last 18 months, we've created a naval studies group at the University of New South Wales Canberra at the Defence Academy. And one of the things that we're doing is doing a podcast series. And as you indicated, I'm president of the Australian Naval Institute, and the Naval Institute is one of the partner organisations in addition to the Submarine Institute, Naval Historical Society, and the RNC Power Centre, pulling their expertise and some resources to do this podcast series. It really focuses on particular incidents in the Navy's history. Um, and so we've done, you know, ones, for example, on the Battle of the Coral Sea or uh, one coming out shortly is on the Navy in confrontation and getting historians and also getting some veterans just to analyse that particular chapter in our, our history for about 50 minutes. And so we put it on YouTube and we put it on any podcast app and uh, and so it's been quite a rewarding thing and, and I think we've learned a lot from uh, Life on the Line and what uh, uh, you've done here uh, you know I think Life on the Line's a, a fantastic um, initiative and, and I think what we're doing with the Australian Naval History is uh, sort of complements uh, that activity. Peter, what I um, like about what we're both doing is you're doing the big picture, the strategic, the big stories, and then we're coming down to that personal level where we're talking about Army, Navy, Air Force personnel. And your story is typical of so many of the more modern, or indeed many of the career Navy guys. You're a modern Navy guy, and your story is just wonderful how you can basically grow up, finish your education down at Creswell, which arguably, and of course I'm biased, but it's the most beautiful setting to learn your basic training. And you have a life that takes you all around the world. You're dealing with all the very best people from all the best countries making a really important, meaningful difference for world stability as we played in the particular Gulf incidents. And here you are back in Australia and now recounting the stories and the experiences of this nation and these people who have all served the country. I would like to support your podcast series in particular. I have a bias. I love the Coral Sea episode, which was the first one I listened to. And I think like many of these things, Coral Sea is just another one of these stories that we as Australians know so little about. And your organisation is doing a wonderful job in highlighting the significance of Coral Sea, indeed Navy life and service. 
Peter, there's a lot that we could keep talking about, but is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we finish today? Probably just uh, one thing. Uh, one of the things I found from my time in the Gulf, I knew at the time that was the most significant thing I was ever going to do in the Navy. And so I tend to think, well, that happens to lots of people in life. Sometimes the most significant thing isn't necessarily at the end, but what you do have to do is just be you know, appreciative you had that opportunity, but just continue to get as much as you can from the rest of your career, but don't always see that the rest of your career may be that elusive highlight because sometimes it's not. Peter, your story is a life experience of service and your service really came to a head in the Gulf. You were well-trained for it. You executed it brilliantly. We are very grateful for your service to this country and thank you for coming and sharing your wonderful story with us today. Thanks very much, Angus, for the opportunity to, um, to share the story about the Maritime Interception Force. That was Angus Horden speaking with former Vice Admiral Peter Jones, AO, DSC. Look at Peter's various works online, including Australia's Argonauts, his first book. Look up the Australian Naval Institute at navalinstitute.com.au and look up the Australian Naval History Podcast. You can watch the podcast on YouTube or listen through Apple Podcasts. Get in touch with the Naval Studies Group about the podcast by emailing navalstudiesgroup at gmail.com. And you can email the team behind this podcast, Thistle Productions, by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and we're on social media too. Make sure you're subscribed in your podcast app to get all content. We have an array of fascinating veteran conversations yet to come this season. From World War II, Navy and Air Force to modern day Special Forces. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget...